0: All right, well, here we are at week five in our nine-week series looking at the engaging gospel, talking about why the gospel is still good news or why the gospel is good news, and we need to share that good news. And for me, I don't know about for you, but for me, this series has flown by. It seems like we just started it. It seems like I'm just starting to get the ball rolling and I'm just starting to get into the rhythm of how I think this series really should flow, and we're over halfway through it already. Throughout this whole series, we've been talking about the same thing. We've been talking about the gospel, what the gospel is, and how we should talk about the gospel with our friends and our family, our coworkers, our neighbors. And my prayer is that throughout this series, you might be encouraged and you might be challenged to have those tough conversations sometimes with your friends and your families and your co-workers. And that you might be challenged and encouraged to have those conversations with people in your life that perhaps you've been hesitant to share the gospel with. Perhaps you've been you know, reluctant to share that gospel message with, or even just nervous to share that gospel message with. I'm reminded throughout this series, I've reminded myself that Jesus didn't just equip some of us to share the gospel. He didn't just equip a few of us, but Jesus equipped all of us to share the gospel. Jesus had placed you, he has placed you, where you are in your unique place in life because he's equipped you to be there. So wherever you are, there is someone in your life that you can share the message of the gospel with. That means me and that means you. Wherever you are in life, God can use you to share this gospel message with people with whoever they are in your life. God can use you to share this message of love and forgiveness, of grace and mercy and hope. He can use you whether you work as a janitor in a school or whether you work as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He can use you whether you are a nurse in a hospital or whether you are a truck driver or a retail worker. He can use you whether you are a stay-at-home mom or whether you own your own business. God can use you wherever you are. He can use you whether you are in a retirement home or whether you're in high school. God can use you wherever you are. This week I was reminded that wherever you are, there is someone in your life who needs to hear that message. There is someone in your life that needs to hear about Jesus. There's someone that needs to hear about the hope that He offers, the forgiveness that He offers, the grace and the mercy that He extends. Someone around you around you, needs to hear this story, needs to hear this message. And you are the person that God has uniquely placed there to share that story. So I encourage you to take that leap of faith and trust that God will give you the words. God will tell you what to say. God will show you how to speak to that person. And I, I challenge you this week to do that, to take that leap. All series long, we've been looking at questions and answers and problems that people have when it comes to sharing the gospel, the people that might have with the gospel. And so this week, we're going to jump right into the first question, or I guess, sorry, the fifth question that we're going to look at today. And this week's question is a good one, but I think it is a bit tougher to get at the root problem. I think it is a, a good question, and you might have heard it, but I also think it is a bit, uh, a bit wide, a bit big. There's a lot of places we could really go with this question. And so we're going to start first with the question and see where these root problems take us. And the question is usually phrased something like this. It usually says, everything that I have, I have earned and I have worked hard for. And I know I'm not perfect, but I'm already the best person that I can be. If I just join your church, you're just going to tell me that I need to do more and I need to be better. Who can live up to the standard of perfection that a church expects of others, but often does not live up to on its own? That's a lot to unpack. That's where the question usually comes about. I've, you know, there's there's uh, a few things that I think this question says. And so what I want to do this week is a little bit different than the couple weeks before. But I want to look at what I think are three problems that this question kind of addresses. Because I think that there, in that question, there is a lot to look at. And so I want to I unpack what I think all three of these problems are. And then I'm going to talk about the good news to all three. And so problem number one that I think comes out of this question. It comes in that first sentence where our experiences in life tell us that we have to earn everything we have or everything we get. We have to earn everything. This question says, everything I have, I've worked for or I've worked hard for. And I think that's a common experience in life, especially for us in the West. Our experiences as Western people tell us that nothing is free. That's a common thing. Nothing's free. You want it. You got to earn it. If you want this thing, you've got to go out and get it. Nothing is free. Society tells us that we have to earn everything we want. Even when it comes down to romance, society tells us uh, if you just watch commercials around Valentine's Day or Mother's Day, you've got to earn that love. Society will tell us that, that it's not just giving, you've got to earn it. So the first problem that I think comes out of this question is I think that this question says, uh, everything I have, I've had to earn. And so I think that's problem number one. Society tells us you've got to earn Everything you have or want. Now, problem number two. Problem number two, I think it's a, a bit deeper, a bit wider. It says the church has often set standards upon people before they even enter the building. Sometimes these standards are not attainable. And more than that, they're not even biblical. And I think this is a fair uh, question or a problem that arises out of the question. Uh, I'm reading a book this week by uh, author and teacher and pastor Bruxy Cavey, who's the lead pastor of the Meeting House uh, in Oakville there. And in this uh, in his book called The End of Religion, it's a, it's a book about the subversive movement that Jesus started when he was here. And so his book called The End of Religion, he tells a story uh, about the standards that the church sets on people. And he tells a story like this. He says... Uh, an example he uses, he says, God said to his people, he said, don't sit in red chairs. And so obviously this is a, a bit of an out there example. I have it on good authority that God says you can absolutely sit in whatever color chair you want. And so we'll just use this analogy though, that God says to his people through Jesus, don't sit in red chairs. Okay, so when Jesus was here 2,021 years ago, uh, Jesus told his followers, he said, hey guys, uh, no sitting in red chairs, not allowed, red chairs equal bad. And so the first generation of Christians that were there with Jesus and just after Jesus, they say, guys, hey, uh, Jesus told us don't sit in red chairs. Red chairs, not cool, not okay. And so they live with that. But the next generation of of Christians that comes up after says, hey, well, we know we can't sit in red chairs because that was told to, or Jesus said that to the people before us. And so in order to avoid sitting in red chairs, uh, we say you should not be within 10 feet of a red chair. So, so it's not just you shouldn't sit in red chairs, but it actually, you should not even be within 10 feet of a red chair. And so that's how that second generation did it. And then that third generation of Christians that or followers of Jesus that came next said, you know what, red chairs are bad, we know that, it says that. And, and you know, it used to say you shouldn't be within 10 feet uh, of, a, of a red chair, but actually uh, we believe that you shouldn't even look. At a red chair not only should you not sit in it not only should you not be within 10 feet of it but you shouldn't even look at a red chair and so on and so on christians kept adding rules or keep adding these standards forgetting that the main message that jesus said was don't sit in red chairs jesus didn't say don't go near them don't touch them don't look at them he didn't say don't be in the same room with them he just simply said don't sit in red chairs and Bruxy Cavey makes the case, and I, and I agree, that I think we have added a lot, or the institution of the church has added a lot of rules and standards that perhaps aren't necessarily in the Bible. I think we've added all kinds of extra rules that were not part of Jesus' original message. And the problem is that, is that through adding all of these extra rules, we've actually made it harder for people to come to Jesus. And I don't, I, I don't say that every single church, I'm not being critical of every church that is out there, but I'm saying the institution of the church has historically done this. And when we add all these rules and these standards, we make it harder for people to come to Jesus. And we actually put more roadblocks up. And the roadblocks were the very things that Jesus came to tear down. When he came here, he came down to tear the wall down to say, I'm tearing down this block between you and me. People can come straight to the Father now through me. Uh, An example in my own life... Pardon me while I put my Starbucks down. An example of my own life is I used to live across the street from a, a Roman Catholic church when I was growing up. And I used to skateboard at the Roman Catholic church uh, or, well, the school beside the church all the time. And so I was very frequent with this church. And I remember I would skate by the front doors of this church a lot. And always there was a little set of rules posted on the front doors of the church. For many years, I remember skating by and reading these rules nearly every day, especially in the summer. It seemed like there was another set that would come up. There's this rules list posted on the front door of the church. And then on right beside the rules list for people who are going to come to church is the dress code. There's a, a, a big dress code posted. It says, here's the uh, official dress code. Uh, if you wish to enter the church, here's the dress code. And there are a lot of rules on there. It said things like men cannot wear shorts. To go in that church, you cannot wear shorts. Uh, women, you cannot show your shoulders. Everything a woman wears has to show, uh, cover their shoulders. Men can have their shoulders bare, but but not like a tank top, not a, a muscle shirt. You could you could bare your shoulders, but not a muscle shirt, not a string type thing here. Uh, another dress code rule was jeans are absolutely not allowed, no jeans in church. And that's not the only thing, uh, sorry, that's not the, the only church I know of that has rules for a dress code just like that. I remember a church that I was hired at as a youth pastor in my first time that I met the senior pastor of that church, the first day I met him. He said to me, he said, here's what you can wear when you come on a Sunday. And he said, obviously no jeans. Obviously you would never wear jeans to church. And obviously no shorts. No shorts should be worn by a pastor ever. And it always annoyed me and and bothered me. And it took me, I think, I think it took me two degrees in theology to truly understand why those rules or why those dress codes bothered me. And it's such a simple answer. It annoys me because it's not what Jesus said. Jesus did not say, come to me all who are dressed like this. We read in Matthew 28, it says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy with burdens. He didn't say, "All oh, come to me, everyone who's, you know, not wearing jeans. Uh, come to me, everyone, as long as you're not wearing shorts. Uh, come to me as long as you are dressed in your Sunday best. He didn't add a bunch of rules. In fact, Jesus purposely did things that were against the rules. Right, He regularly healed people on the Sabbath, which was an absolute no-no for the Jews. He actually told people to go to wash off in sacrificial pools, like special pools that were de- used during special festivals, that he knew the religious leaders were going to be offended, but he said, yeah, hey, go wash off in that pool. It's totally fine. Go ahead. One time, he actually even spits on the ground. He spits in the dirt. He makes mud, and he slaps it on a guy's eyes to heal him. He spits in the ground, makes mud out of his spit and dirt, and slaps on a guy's eyes to heal him. You're telling me a guy who spit on the ground and made mud and put it on a guy's eyeballs to heal is gonna tell you that you can't come to church if you're wearing shorts? Because come on, that's ridiculous. We know that that's not what he would say. Along the way, though, somewhere, the church as an institution, we set some of these standards or some of these practices into place that I don't think are the standards Jesus set up. And so I think that's problem number two. We have made it harder for people to come to Jesus through some of the standards that we've set up. Problem number three, the third problem, is that even though we've set those standards, we have very often failed to live up to them ourselves. We know this all too well especially the last couple of years with the rise of social media and how everything that you've posted years and years and years is coming to light. As more and more Christians, leaders, we see in the news, we see these moral failures. We see uh, more and more churches and Christians that are uprooted by the moral failures of their worship leader or their pastor or their board or whoever. I remember a pastor friend of mine once told me that all the pastors, all pastors, period, all pastors should admit their sin from the pulpit if they sin. And I said, I said, when was the last time you did that? And he said, oh, if I had ever sinned, I would. And I think too often in the church, that kind of an attitude leads to these moral failures and these mistakes because we go around saying things like, I am perfect. I don't sin. And we believe it in our minds. We believe in our heads. We think, well, we're perfect. We don't sin. And you know, the, the funny thing is that no one is surprised when a liar lies. You know, when we know someone who is a liar, when they lie, we're not surprised. When, when a businessman does a business deal, we're not surprised. They're a business person. That's what they would do. But people are surprised when, when someone who says, I am perfect, is found out to not be perfect. And so the third problem here is that too often our actions uh, in the church and the words that we claim in the church don't line up well. Too often they don't line up well. And they end up in the news when they don't line up. They end up in the news, they end up on social media, and people see those mistakes instead of the very real message. But there is good news for all three of these problems. Even though I think these are three very big problems that uh, come out of the question we've looked at, I think there is good news for all of them. And so what's the good news when it comes to them? I'm going to actually read Ephesians 2, 4-10 because I believe uh, this is one of the best explanations of the good news for these problems. And the good news for these problems is all about grace. So let's read Ephesians 2, 4 to 10. It says, But God who was rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead to our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, this is the gift of God. It is not the result of works, so no one can boast. We are what He has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Some commentators look at this section here, including Kyle Snodgrass, who writes a, a great commentary on Ephesians. They look at this section and they say this section, Ephesians 2, 4-10, is the best summary of the gospel. It is the best summary of the gospel. And I think this section, these six verses, they summarize the gospel in such a good way that I, I truly believe these six verses speak to the three problems that we discuss. And so let's look at all three problems, what I think the good news is. So the problem number one is, is if you, you remember a few minutes ago, the problem number one is that we're told by society that we have to earn everything we have. If we want something, we have to earn it or work for it. Society tells us that, but it's actually weird because there's a huge part of each one of our life experiences that goes completely contrary to that. It's when you're growing up. Let me ask you, when you were growing up, what did you do to earn your first pair of shoes from your parent? What did you do to earn your first meal from your parent? What did you do to earn a roof over your head when you were six months old or when you were one or two? What did you do to earn any of those things? And the answer is nothing. You did nothing to earn those things. We didn't earn those things when we were younger. They were simply gifts from a loving parent or gifts from a loving guardian. There's a huge portion of our life where we do nothing to earn what we have. I didn't earn my keep when I was four years old. I was four years old. All I knew how to do was play and make messes and eat food. I didn't do anything to earn what my parents provided for me. My parents provided for me simply because they loved me. And so that love was a gift. And in that gift of love, they wanted to provide and protect and, and care for. It's a gift, a free gift. And so we actually inherently know what it is like to not have to earn anything or to not have to earn what we have. And the good news is that, as we read earlier in Paul's words, the grace that God shows you, His grace, is a gift from God that you can do nothing to earn. You didn't do anything to earn God's grace, and nor can you do anything to earn God's grace. You can't do anything to earn the salvation that He offers or the forgiveness that He offers. It is a free gift, and all of that comes to us by, or to us, uh, by way of His grace. Paul says it here, he says, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So grace has saved us from from, from sin, from failures, from our mistakes. Grace has really it saved us from ourselves. And he says, in that grace, you didn't do anything to earn that. He says, this is a free gift from God. It is a gift from God. And so the first part of the first good news is that God's gift to us, God's grace, that gift of grace is free. And we struggle with this sometimes because as adults we foolishly believe that we have earned everything we worked for. And I know I haven't earned everything I've worked for. I have been given much in life. I have been provided for by God and through others much in my life. I didn't earn the sunset that I watched this morning. I didn't earn the ability for my legs to walk. I didn't earn the ability for my eyes and ears to to hear and see. I didn't do anything to earn the beautiful creation that I see all around me every day. That is all given to us by God. Everything we have is a gift from God. Every single thing we have. But somewhere that gets lost in translation, and we think that we have earned those things ourselves. The good news about this is that we don't have to earn our salvation, and we can't earn our salvation. And because we can't and we don't have to, it means we can stop trying to earn our salvation. Some authors would define grace as grace is the completely undeserved, loving, faithful commitment of God to us. It's undeserved, and it is His faithful, loving commitment of Him to us. Grace is undeserved, they say, which means that we've done nothing to deserve it and nor can we do anything to deserve it. It is a free gift. And so the good news is that you don't have to earn it and you can't earn it. God gives it freely. So that means all you have to do is open yourself up and accept it. All you have to do is say, yes, Lord, thank you for this free gift. And so problem number two. The second problem that we looked at is that the church requires too much of its people, or the institution of the church requires too much of its people, and sets the standards and the bars too high sometimes. People feel like the church will demand too much from them, that they're already a good person, they can't get any better, and there's good news here too. And I want you to listen very carefully, because I think that it will be very easy to misunderstand or misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm saying Jesus did not come to establish a building He did not come to establish a pastoral team or a staffing team. He didn't come to establish a board of management or a board of missions and discipleship. Jesus did not come to establish an institution or an organization, and he certainly didn't come to establish an organization called Avenue Road Baptist Church. He didn't come to establish an institution that we sometimes refer to as the church. What he did come to establish was the church. He came to establish an open relationship between you and him. And together, you and me and all the rest of the followers of Jesus, we are the church. Together, all of us who have that relationship with Jesus, we are the church. That's the church that Jesus came to establish, not a building, not an institution. That's actually our theme for this year, if you remember it. We are the church. And that doesn't arrogantly mean that we here at Avenue Road Baptist, we are the real church, we are the true church. But what that means is that we, the people who have relationship with Jesus Christ, the people who are followers of Him, all of us who are His friends, we are the church. It's the people, not the building, not the institution. And so if Jesus came to establish not an institution or a building, but He came to establish an ability to have a relationship with Him, And the fact that some institutions have placed huge requirements on its members shouldn't distract us from the real message of the gospel. The real message is all about that relationship with Him. Now, I'm not trying to slam other institutions. I'm not trying to slam the global institution of the church. But what I am saying is that that, that's not what Jesus came to establish. I'm not trying to slam churches that have dress codes or expectations, but I'm coming to say that Jesus didn't come to establish those things. He came to establish a relationship with you. He came to say, I want to know you and I want you to know me. And he said, I want to break down all the barriers. You know, previously we know that you could only meet God in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And there was, there was a huge temple curtain that, that, that blocked off people from going there. And when Jesus died, the temple curtain ripped from the top down. It was a metaphor for Jesus saying, no more is there a barrier between me and you. No more is there a barrier between God and his people. You can all come to me now through Jesus. So you might follow this and say, well, Luke, if that's true, then why do I need to go to a physical church? Why do I need to be part of a physical church? Why do I need any of that? And the simple answer is that while it is not required to be part of a physical institution of a church, or while it's not required to be a member in a church, and you simply don't need it in the fact of, is, you know, are you going to lose your salvation, uh, you will certainly find that if you join a family, if you join a community of believers, if you join that, that brotherhood and sisterhood, you will find your Christian life walk or your Christian faith walk easier. Community is such a helpful thing. Walking a life in relationship with Jesus is hard, but it can be easier when there are 100 or 200 or 1,000 other believers walking right beside you, offering some support, praying for you, encouraging you, helping along your way. My analogy here that I'm gonna use is a borrowed analogy, and I again, I think I borrowed it from Bruxy Cavey, I truthfully can't remember. Um, it's a borrowed analogy, but I think it is a perfect analogy. As a person with a background in carpentry, I could build a barn. I could absolutely build a barn. I have this skill. I have the knowledge. I can build a barn all by myself. Now, if I build this barn all by myself, it is going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot of hard work. It's going to take a lot of ingenuity and it's going to take quite a long time to build a barn, but it is possible to do that barn building by myself. However, look at how the Amish do it. The entire community in an Amish community will get together. And instead of taking months or years to build a barn, oftentimes it will take a day. There could be 100 or 200 Amish together building this barn and they will raise that barn from the ground up in a day. And the crazy thing, and you can actually see footage of this online because people have filmed it happening, is if they build it and it's not in the right spot, they will lift the barn together. They'll take 200 or 300 or however many it takes and they'll lift that barn up off the ground and put it in the right spot. They can move it by hand because they're doing it in community. So we're accomplishing the same task. If I build a barn or 200 of them build a barn, we're both building a barn at the end of the day. That That end result has happened. The barn has been built. However, it takes me much longer to do it by myself and it is much harder to do it myself. In community, things are easier. In community, there is support, encouragement, wisdom, help. When, when, you, when your goal is relationship or a, a relationship or a faith walk with Jesus, uh, I think that you will find that when you try to walk that road with others who are also walking in the same direction, towards the same goal, you will find it an easier path to walk than if you try to go it alone. You will find it easier with others. Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead to trespasses, made us alive together with Christ." By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Paul reminding us why Jesus came. Jesus came out of his God's love for us. God sent Jesus. And why did he send Jesus? He sent Jesus so that we could be made alive through him, so that we could sit together with him, we could be saved by grace and have relationship with him. He didn't send Jesus to make us feel bad because we could never measure up. He didn't send Jesus to to make us uh, feel upset that Jesus set this perfect standard of perfection that we will never meet. But Jesus came and said, I've come so that you can have a relationship with me and you don't have to keep trying to earn your way. And you will find that it is easier to do that in community. Now, the third part of the third problem that I think uh, we looked at from the question is that the church has often failed to live up to its own standard. And this is true. It's unfortunately true. We know it all too well. We have seen pastors, churches, Christian worship leaders, Christian authors. We see them in the news. Uh, we've seen them quite recently in the news, all these things, and, and they they usually say some kind of a fall from grace, or they've they've fallen from grace will be a headline about it. And it's a weird way of stating that. Because the good news about this, or the good news about uh, this standard is that realistically you, you can't fall from grace. I mean, grace by its very definition is not something you have deserved or earned. And if you can't add to it or detract from it, then you can't fall from that grace. If you didn't earn it or, or do it yourself, it's not a status you have achieved that you can fall off of. Grace is simply a part of God's character. It's part of who He is. He is a, a God who shows grace. And so you can't really fall from grace like the headlines would say because it's not a status you've attained. God simply shows grace towards us because of who he is and because of his love for us. But we do need to realize that these Christian leaders have these, or, or these, these authors, whoever they are, these moral failures, they are a problem for the world especially. The world looks at the church and sees these, these famous Christians and, it, and it's a block for them. And the problem is worsened when churches or the institution of the church that the belong, person belongs to or, or the company or whoever it is, they cover it up and they cover up that moral failure. And so the good news is, uh, or, or I guess the good news in the solution is that we need to openly acknowledge the failure uh, and openly accept grace. We need to openly acknowledge that no matter who you are in the church, whether you are the pastor or a deacon or whether you are a kid's church volunteer, the sound guy, no matter who you are, you need to admit that you're not perfect. We need to admit we're not we're not perfect. We simply are not perfect. We need to admit that we have made mistakes. We need to admit that we fail. We have shortcomings. And when we fail, we need to admit that. We say I have failed. I I, I messed up here. I made a mistake. And we need to deal with that mistake properly and appropriately and admit to it. And people outside the church, see, see, they see the church, and they see the standard that we, we say, and then they see these mistakes, and they see them hidden, or covered up, and they judge us very harshly for those mistakes because when we try to hide them, it's like we talk about grace, but we don't want to admit it or accept it in our lives. We pretend like that couldn't happen. I don't actually need grace. Just you guys need grace. But we need to acknowledge that those things happen. And we also need to acknowledge that while there are Christian authors and leaders who appear in the news for their moral failures, there are many others who will never appear in the news. We're never going to see them in the news for these giant moral failures, and likely because these giant moral failures aren't happening in their life. Now, I'm not saying that they're not, they're not sinning. I'm not saying that there's, there are a set of Christian leaders and authors who are out there that are incapable of sinning, because that's just not true. We know that everyone sins, everyone falls short. But what I am saying is that it's often not newsworthy because it's, it's not this giant moral failure that's been covered up for years and years and years. You know, no one's going to read an article that's entitled uh, Christian pastor who admits that he's not perfect and never was perfect makes a mistake and owns up to that mistake. You know, no one's going to read that because that's not newsworthy. No one's going to read an article that says, you know, Christian pastor who knows he, he knows he sins in his life commits a sin and admits it and asks for forgiveness. No one's going to read that. No one wants to read that. And so it's not going to make the news. And so while there are some Christian leaders and authors who are in the news for these massive moral failures that have been hidden, there are many more who are never going to be in the news because they haven't made those giant moral failures. And they've made some, but they're living that more honest and open life that says, I know I'm not perfect uh, and I need grace. And so the good news, I think, for problem three is that grace applies to the person on the stage speaking from the pulpit, the person who's writing those Christian books, just as much as it does for the person who's sitting in the pew or the person who's reading the book. And if grace applies to both of those things, then we need to act like grace applies to us. Christians, Christian leaders, Christian, uh, you know, in the pews, Christian authors, all of us. We need to remember that grace is not simply something we talk about, but it is something that we need to live and experience. We need to act like grace applies to us too. And we need to humbly admit when we've made mistakes and not try to cover them up when we need to deal with them. Max Lacato once wrote, To accept grace is to admit failure a step that we are hesitant to take. We opt to instead impress God with how good we are rather than confessing how great He is. And I think you could extend this to this situation to say, we opt to impress others with how good we are rather than confessing how great He is. Because often that's what happens. We want to impress others with how great a person this Christian leader is and we don't want to instead just admit how much this person needs God and how much we all need God. You know, to accept grace is to admit failure is what Max Lucado says. And we don't often want to take that. And especially Christian leaders and, and authors and f- famous people in the news that it, it becomes very hesitant to want to admit failure in their lives. And and I can understand that, but but we have to remind, we have to realize that we're here to accept grace and, and confess how much we need him and that we're not doing this on our own. The good news is that we don't have to impress others with how good we are because we simply aren't as good as we think we are. The good news is that is is good news is because God is so good that we can instead opt to talk about how much we need him and and instead talk less about how great we are. So the good news for the three problems that we've looked at uh, is those three things there, and they all have to do with grace. Each one of those three problems can be addressed by grace or with grace or through grace. And so what is the message to share then? I think, again, like the previous weeks, our message to share is so simple. Our message to share is so easy. Our message to share with others is grace. We need to share grace with others. We can't earn God's grace. God's grace is undeserved. God's grace doesn't run out. You, can, you, can, you, you can't ever run out of God's grace. And, and, and because it's undeserved and you can't run out of it, you, need, you can stop trying to earn it on your own. You can stop trying to earn these things. You don't have to earn it. It's a free gift. David Hawkins writes, God's grace is just that. It is grace, unmerited favor. Nothing I will do can ever cause him to love me more or love me less. And Augustine wrote about grace too. And Augustine says, Grace is given not because we've done good works to deserve it, but has been given in order that we might be able to do good works. God gives us grace not because we've done anything to earn it, but he gives it to us freely as a gift. God didn't show you grace because you earned it. He shows you his grace so that you can have a relationship with him, so that you can have that fellowship with him. And when you have that relationship and that fellowship with him, good works will start to naturally flow out of you. When you commune with Jesus on a regular basis, when you you have that loving two-way relationship with him, good works will naturally start to flow out of you, through you. That love will just radiate out of you and through you. There's a really great paraphrase of Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 that I want to leave you with. And we read Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 as our call to worship. And I want to leave you with it here because I think this is our message to share with the world. I think this is a great message to share with the world. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary of trying to earn their way. Come to me, all who are tired of being judged, who've never quite measured up. Come to me, all who are weighted with depression and anxiety. Come to me, all who don't know what is wrong. Come to me and rest. Rest with me. And together, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for grace. God, thank you that we, we are given grace from you, Lord, freely, that it is a gift. God, that we don't have to do anything to earn it or deserve it. Lord, help each of us who've experienced that grace. Help each of us take this message of grace to others. Take this message to a weary and tired and burdened and scared world and help us to show them your grace. Lord, help us be people that show grace and feel grace and grace just radiates through us because of our relationship with you. Father, thank you for everything you have taught us and you are teaching us. And may God, would you continue to bless this 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 place, these people. Father, would our message of love and hope and grace be just heard throughout the world, beyond the borders of the city of, of Cambridge, beyond the region of Waterloo. But God, with the grace that we talk about, would the world hear that message, Lord? Would the world experience that message from you? Father, we just thank you for who you are and what you do and what you have shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.